Let's just open a word of prayer. Father, again, thank you for this opportunity to open up your word. We pray that even now, all around the world, that your word would be opened up in many pulpits and churches around the world so that you would speak with clarity through those pastors and preachers. I pray, Lord, for the believers in troubled lands, and I hold up the believers in Ukraine and those who have been scattered because of war. Lord, you know their dilemmas, you know their status. You're the one who remains closer than a friend. Father, we pray that you would bring balm and comfort to each one of their hearts, those who who are in some degree suffering. Father, we pray, Lord, even for our own outreach as a church, that we could bring with clarity to our own community here in St. Charles the gospel, the greatest message in all the world, so that people can know that their sins can be forgiven through the person of Christ. May each one of us be, as it were, gossiping the gospel to others. Pray, Lord, that we would speak with clarity to those around us, neighbors and friends, people that we meet. Thank you again for this time when your word, and we just give it over to you. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There it is. As I was thinking about where we are in the book of Revelation and, and um, preparing for this message and even into future messages, I'm glad that we're almost to the end of this section where we, once we get through chapter 18, we hit the good stuff. <laughs> I mean the positive stuff. I mean the stuff that is different from what we ha- where we have been for since chapter 6 of this book, where, which has been just a grueling chapter after chapter study uh, regarding the very weighty uh, matters of God's wrath and judgment being poured out chapter after chapter upon uh, the world. And uh, it's a challenge to come up with anything new in terms of application. But one thing that I realized this week is that because we have the gospel, we have the greatest message that needs to be proclaimed. That there is no message, there is no um, proclamation other than the gospel itself that can um, bring people to a sense of where they stand with God and what they need to do. This past week, I was out again at um, Aldi, passing out tracts and talking to some people. And I was very much rewarded because I had talked to uh, a young gal uh, for a few minutes. And um, I gave her uh, a tract. And um, as I would customarily do, I would just say, if you would just read this and think about it, it, it will explain to you the greatest message that there is. And so um, usually people just stick it in their pocket or their grocery bag or whatever, and that's that. And uh, But I, after a minute or two, I, she got in her car, and I looked back, and I noticed that she was reading it right there in the parking lot, uh, reading that tract. And it was just a blessing to be able to see just that. I mean, just to see that somebody was taking serious that little piece of literature and getting into it was a blessing to my heart of of just a great measure. So you and I need to be aware of the book that we have on our laps here this morning as we launch into this message this morning, Seven Angels in the Temple of Doom. Sounds like a uh, title from an Indiana Jones uh, movie, but... uh, it is meant to kind of mimic that a little bit, but uh, I didn't see any other titles of that same nature. I saw a lot regarding the Temple of Doom or something about seven angels, but I never saw them put together like that. Maybe there is. So I, I want to think that this is original with me, but maybe it's not. But, uh, you know, I, I found this little graphic here that I found very engaging is this 
a dusty Bible with someone writing on it, read me, um, ought to be an encouragement to you. If you have a dusty Bible at home, maybe you need to blow off the dust and to get into it a little bit more. I think every Christian here, every person here in this room needs, and under the sounding of my voice and those who are out there in TV land somewhere, uh, needs to take seriously the reading of their Bible virtually every day. Now, you can miss a few days, and you, we won't send you to purgatory over that, but, but uh, you need to be in the book every day, at least for five minutes. I mean, ten minutes, what is that? I mean, so just an encouragement. And so we come today to Revelation chapter 15, and we're going to find out again that God is going to be faithful to his word, that people today worry about many, many things. They worry about the environment. They wor- worry about global warming. They worry about political unrest and inflation and terrorism and crime and financial collapse. And um, the case is made worse by the fact that people have uh, an emptiness that is fostered by an anti-God philosophy. Uh, I was listening to Warren Wiersbe this morning on one of the radio stations, and he was um, talking about that anytime you take God out of the equation of people's lives and in our culture, when you take God out, confusion fills the void. And men try to superimpose their own foolishness to try to mask over the confusion. But it doesn't work. And so there is... Only hope in the gospel. People do not fear, in fact, what they should fear. Uh, the Bible tells us repeatedly how God is a, is a God of judgment, a God of wrath. For instance, in Psalms 96, 13, he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his, in his faithfulness. Psalm 98, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Psalm 110, he will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Joel 3, I will gather the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land and let the nations be aroused and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Or Acts 17, getting in the New Testament, verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Or 2 Timothy 4.1, I solemnly charge you, Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Or Isaiah chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment. Their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make a land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Because the fact that people ignore the reality that God is holy, and that God is the one who actually brings harmony and a sense of cohesion to society... Uh, they, because they eliminate God, the world is full of confusion, and they forget the fact that Hebrews says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Throughout history, throughout human history, man, or God's rather, God has poured out his wrath on man. You see, all of us are aware of Adam's sin in Edom brought an entire human race down. For by one man sin entered the world, Romans 5.12, and death spread to all men. Or in Noah's day, God sent a cataclysmic judgment 
of the flood to destroy the world. We know that from Genesis chapter 6 through 8. And only Noah and those who were with him in the ark survived. In Abraham's day, God brought his wrath on two wicked cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. Even while Abraham tried to bargain with God that if there are 50 righteous there, will you spare those cities? And God said, I will. And Abraham bargained with God all the way down to 10. God says, I will spare the cities if there are 10 righteous there. And there weren't. And God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. God took out his own first. He took out Lot, even though Lot was a bit of a, bit of a screw-up. But we can tell from Scripture that he was one of God's own. And God spared Lot, righteous Lot. He's called righteous Lot. <laughs> I'm amazed at that. And God takes out his own, even if they're a little bit screwy, and he will spare them before he brings judgment. And so, the time of Doom for the nations is near, Ezekiel 30, verse 3 says. Or Joel says, alas, I had those up here, Ezekiel 30, verse 3. Or Joel chapter 1, verse 15, alas, for the day, the day of the Lord is near. It, is, it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Or Amos says, prepare to meet your God, Amos 4, 12. Or Zephaniah chapter 1, there's more there. All I'm trying to point out is the fact is that Scripture after Scripture, whether it's the Old Testament or New Testament, speaks of this time when the wicked will be judged and they will be led forth at a time of the pouring out of God's wrath. It's everywhere in the Bible. It's not just in the Old Testament, although there's many verses in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament as well. The God of the New Testament is not different than the God of the Old Testament. And so, one of the things I learned way back in, from, I had, a, I had a theology teacher back at Appalachian Bible College who I think was one of the best, theolo- I, I was told by others, other professors, they thought that our theology teacher was one of the finest at that time in all the country, Dr. Joseph Pinter. And he taught us a lot of things, including stuff that he reminded us of the fact that there are different categories of God's wrath. There's the sowing and reaping category of God's wrath. You know, you reap what you sow. That's a form of God's wrath. Or there's the cataclysmic wrath, which we see in the flood, where the whole world was destroyed by a great cataclysm, or in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's called cataclysmic wrath. That's in that category. Or there's the wrath of abandonment, which is talked about in Romans chapter 1, where, where it speaks of God just withdrawing his presence, and that if men want to live in sin, then he got, it says God gave them up. God gave them over to do those things which are debased. And so God simply abandons people to their sin. That's the wrath. That's a form of God's wrath. He abandons people to do their own thing. Or there's Obviously, eternal wrath, that men go into a Christless eternity for, uh, forever. But then what we're looking at today in the book of Revelation is what has been called by theologians eschatological wrath. Eschatological wrath, where God pours out his wrath at a specific time in, in history, uh, particularly here in the end times. And we find... We've been finding that to be true in the book of Revelation from chapter uh, 6 to this very present point until we get to the end of chapter 18, and we turn the corner, we get into chapters 19 through 22, and it's a different scene that we're going to be looking at. But here we are in chapter 15, which is the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, chapter 15, just eight short verses, and this chapter will form a kind of introduction to the rapid-fire final judgments that come in chapter 16 called the bowl judgments. We've seen the seal judgments. There are seven of those. We've seen the trumpet judgments. There are seven of those. There are seven what's called bowl judgments. These are a series of God's judgments, three of them, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, seven apiece, and um, the final series, the final volley, if you will, comes in the very next chapter. But chapter 15 
provides for us an introduction to those final seven bowl judgment. And so there are three parts to this chapter here this morning. And allow me to read verses 1 through 8, and you follow along here. This is Revelation 15, beginning with verse 1, reading from the New American Standard. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord? And glorify thy name, for thou alone art holy, for all the nations will come and worship before, before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around with around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. First of all, in this introduction to the bold judgments, we see the sign, first of all, the sign of God's final wrath. Verse 1. Verse 1 speaks of a scene in heaven. Verse 1 says, John says, I saw another sign in heaven. This is actually the third heavenly sign that John has seen in the book of Revelation. The first one was actually spoken of a specific sign was in chapter 12, verse 1, where he saw the sign of a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head were a crown of 12 stars. That was the first sign. The second was in chapter 12, verse 3 as well, where he saw a sign of a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. And here is the third sign. And the sign itself really consists of seven angels who have these seven plagues. And you see the terms here in the New American called it's great and marvelous to express the enormous importance of this sign as it, as it contains the final outpouring of God's wrath to be revealed. And it talks about these seven plagues. And the word plague there means like a blow or a wound. It's not like, don't think of a disease or an epidemic in terms of a term plague. It's like a, like a blow or a wound. And so there are seven blows, seven wounds, each angel carrying in, in his bowl each a different plague, a, a, each a different blow or wound to deliver in these final series of judgments. And um, these are going to be the last, because it says here in the text in verse 1 that uh, because in them the wrath of God is finished. Finished. Look up the word finished. It's the same word used by Jesus when he was on the cross, to Telestai. It is finished. Here it's in the aorist passive, which means that it's in the passive voice, or so what's the big deal about that? It means somebody's finishing it. Somebody else outside of these worldlings, somebody, namely God, he is the one who's finishing it. He is the one who's bringing this series of expressions of his wrath finally to an end. So it will be finished. And uh, his wrath will come to an end. It extends throughout the seven-year period of the tribulation. But it will come to an end. And this tremendous outpouring of God's final judgment was anticipated earlier in the book of Revelation. Uh, and uh, it started in chapter 6. It commences here. 
In Revelation 16, verse 17, it speaks of it as the great day of God's wrath in, in Revelation 6, verse 17. It is the, uh, the third series here, the bold judgments. And um, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8, again, speaks of this day. Again, he says, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation and all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. See, this has never happened. What, Ze- what uh, Zephaniah says here has never happened. There's coming, so it was even future, it's, it's future in our day, it was way future in his day. Um, and so, I don't take this as some people that I've talked to, well, it's just poetic language, he's not speaking of anything specific, just simply he's denoting the, the fullness of God's wrath on men's sin, and, and so lots of Bible interpreters today will take passages like this and simply kind of uh, just sort of generalize them and fog it over and smoke it over with a lot of uh, unbelief to its specificity. Did I say that right? It's very detailed. It's very specific. And yet men, interpreters today, Bible interpreters, professed Christians, people who are pastors and, and, and seminary teachers will take passages like this and say it's, it's not anything really specific. So that's point number one. Point number two in our outline here is the scene around God's throne in verses 2 through 4, is the scene around God's throne. And in verse 2, John writes, he says, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. So here is this vision and John sees something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now there are other occasions in the Bible where Other men, ordinary men, like Moses, had a similar vision in Exodus 24, verse 10, where Moses says he saw the God of Israel. Exodus, this is Exodus 24, 10. He says, I saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. That's what Moses says. Or... Ezekiel had a similar vision in Ezekiel chapter 1, which he looked at a number of months ago, uh, where in, in Ezekiel chapter 1 is Ezekiel's uh, pretty bizarre uh, way of describing heaven. And you read Ezekiel 1 over and over again, and it's like you still don't get it. It's like because it's way out there. But he's describing heaven. Go back and read Ezekiel 1. But in Ezekiel 1.22, Ezekiel says, I saw something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal. And so what I find here between Moses and Ezekiel and here John's vision, that they all saw the same thing. That they are expressing in slightly different words the very same scene. Aren't you glad that the Bible corroborates itself? That the best commentary for the Bible is the Bible itself. Um, what Moses saw, Ezekiel saw, and what Ezekiel saw, John saw. And, uh, and it's noted here in Revelation 15, verse 2, that the, the tranquil beauty of this sea that is seen by John is mixed with the fire of God's judgment. Hebrews 12, 29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. Fire is oftentimes associated in the Bible with God's judgment. And i got a list of verses as long as your arm to, to make that point, but I don't need to go over that with you. That fire is oftentimes associated with God's judgment. And so here is John, and he saw gathered around this throne, this very beautiful scene that he's described here. He sees some people. He says he sees those who have been victorious over the beast, now, who are these people? Well, these are the same people talked about back in chapter 6 of Revelation and chapter 7, chapter 12, chapter 14. They, these are the people, these are believers who, who were saved or redeemed during the tribulation. These are tribulation saints who were martyred. 
These were tribulation saints, or they are rather. I'm never sure how to put this. It's, they're going to be. They are here in the text. Tribulation saints. And it says they, they will be victorious over the beast because of their undying faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They might have been martyrs, but that doesn't mean that they weren't victorious. They might have been put to death, but that doesn't mean that they were not victorious. Because you know something about a Christian or any follower, of, we might call these are followers of God. Technically, they're not Christians because they were saved after the church was raptured. But any follower of God is, as Romans says, invincible. I love this. We've got to read this passage. You know this passage. Uh, well, I think I have it up here. This passage has been described as expressing Christian invincibility. Think about this. Especially as we enter into the difficulties of our day. <laughs> uh, someone was saying, I was reading Lutzer, and he said something to the effect that, in a sense, we are living in Babylon today. A kind of, ba- not the Babylon, but Babylon has always existed. And we'll go back to that theme here in, a, in another week or two. But Babylon has always existed. The system, the mentality that started way back in Genesis 10 and 11, and so we are living in a Babylon, but, but we live victorious. In Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, Paul asks the question, what shall, or rather, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecutions or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 36 and 37, just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. That's the Greek word Nike, by the way. You know where, that's where the tennis shoe company came up with their name. They took the word, which means to conquer, and are selling tennis shoes with it. Made by slave labor in China. Anyway, that's another point. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is Christian invincibility. In other words, the true follower of Christ cannot be touched or harmed. Yeah, your body can be put to death. I mean, Jesus says, uh, don't fear him who can take your body, but fear him who can take body and soul and throw it into hell. I'm paraphrasing at that point. Jesus said that. So we have an invincibility. Going back to verse 32 in that same chapter, Romans 8, which... I think I should go back to here, but if if God is for us, then um, what has he given to us? Well, verse 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So, in other words, if God did not spare the greatest gift that he could give us, that is the person of Christ on the cross, if he did not spare... In the giving of his son, the greatest thing he could give us, do you think he's going to fail to not give us the little menial things that we need to get through this life or uh, to survive as long as he wants us to survive? Do you think he's going to jip us in the lesser things if he gave us the greater thing? Well, of course not. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? That's back in verse 32. So, you go back to Revelation. So, here is this these tribulation saints who are now before God, before his throne. It says there in 15 verse 2, those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image, uh, they didn't bow down to it. They didn't give in to it. They were victorious. They didn't, they didn't give in to taking the number 
of his of the beast. Um, and so we can be triumphant today, even as they were triumphant. There's an application. Just think about these tribulation saints and how they stood in their day, which is still future to us. How shall we stand today? As we are, even today, at the very beginnings of what, of what we see is going into this time period. Commonly also known as the Great Reset. So, these believers here in our text are rejoicing because their prayers to God now for God to take vengeance are about to be answered. Their praise, you see that they are holding harps of God and uh, that they're, they're rejoicing, they're singing in His presence. Why are they singing in His presence? Because they're glad, finally, finally God is about to act. Back in chapter 6, verses uh, 9 and 10, I think it is, Chapter 6, yeah, chapter 6, verse 9. Here are a group of people, the same group who have gone early, early on, apparently, in the tribulation, and they're saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Answer, chapter 15, verse 2. I'm about ready to do it. Chapter 16, I'm doing it. And so we find here God being faithful again to his word, whether it be in granting heaven and eternal life to those who believe or whether he grants judgment on those who do not believe. Jesus said back in Matthew 18, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Later on, that same passage in Matthew 18, Jesus says, See to it that, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying in that passage in Matthew 18 that unbelievers will be condemned to eternal hell for mistreating God's people. Well, it's about ready to happen here, at least in the eschatological sense. But then the same people are going to experience the eternal wrath of God. They're going to experience the eschatological wrath of God and then the eternal wrath of God. They're going to get both barrels. They're going to get both barrels. People don't like this kind of preaching today. <laughs> I mean, the average person out there coming here, coming here for the first time, and there's no first-timers here this morning, so I can say this, would might be repulsed and might recoil at this kind of preaching. <laughs> I'm, and I think you are too, exhilarated by it. Because I know that the, that God I know that we know that there's a God who will reckon all accounts. He's going to make all accounts and bring them to some kind of uh, reckoning. And so unbelievers will be condemned here. And I'm reminded again that God is the one who ultimately takes vengeance here. He's the one who's about to do it. And they're rejoicing here in this verse. And Dina read a passage in, in this morning in um, Psalm 94, which speaks of the, re, the, of the vengeance of God. And yet, despite having endured the most intense persecution the world will ever know, these believers here in, Matthew, in, uh, in Revelation 15, they have a faith that kept true. Their faith was a gift from God. They endured even in, in death itself. And now they will stand triumphantly before the throne of God as God is about ready to take vengeance. And you move on to verse 3 and 4. It says that they sang a song, an anthem to praise. They sang the song of Moses and they sang uh, the, the song of the Lord. As you look there in verse, verse 3, um, 
They sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are thy ways, thou King of the nations. And so there's, there's two things mentioned here, is the song of Moses and the song of the Lord. And uh, as I was thinking about this, I'm thinking, well, you know, there are, there are various places throughout the Bible where people sang some songs uh, to the Lord. For instance, uh, several times, the, the song of Moses is found in um, is, uh, Exodus uh, 15, but they, but, but they actually sang a song before that, or um, after that, just before Moses went to his, uh, before his death in Deuteronomy, there's recorded in Deuteronomy 31, a song of remembrance that, that Moses taught the people just before he was taken in death. Then uh, Deborah and Barak in uh, Judges chapter 5, who had a triumphant victory, they celebrated um, uh, the defeat of the Canaanites with a song, um, a, tri- a song of triumphant victory in Judges chapter 5. Then in Hezekiah, in Second in Chronicles chapter 29, there's another song sung to the Lord as part of the restoration of the true worship of God that had been neglected for so many years. It's, it's restored during the days of Hezekiah, and they sang a great song in Second in Chronicles 29. And then David wrote all the Psalms, 150, not, he didn't write all the Psalms, I'll back off, many of the Psalms he wrote, and and uh, most of them are basically psalms of, of worship of some kind. Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon, which is basically another song. So there are songs throughout the Bible that are sung. So here are two that are mentioned, the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lord. And they're just declaring the, the glory of redemption, uh, of deliverance by God. And in addition to singing that song of Moses, again, the song of the Lamb. Uh, if you go back to chapter 5 here in Revelation, verses 8 through 14, you find there um, this song that was sung in Revelation 5, beginning with verse 8. And it says, and they sang a new song. This is verse 9, actually. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art, art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and didst purchase for God with your blood men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. There's, there's the song of the Lord, this new song that was sung back in chapter 5. So like the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb expresses the themes of God's faithfulness to deliver his people. God will deliver his people. That's, the, that's what we look forward to. As things even today begin to get more and more chaotic, the ratchet is, the, the screws are being tightened upon us, certainly financially, certainly in the sense of, of culturally, and we are the minority for sure in this land and in this world, we are outnumbered by the unsaved who hate us as Christians. Uh, uh, the tide is turned against us. You cannot deny that. And yet we look forward to our great deliverance. And you see people singing to that end. That's why singing is so important. Singing is so important. Sometimes I think singing is more important than sermons. You wouldn't expect me to say that, would you? <laughs> I think, because you don't see sermons in heaven, but you see singing still. Sermons, I think, are going to come to an end, I think. Maybe I'm wrong there, but I don't, don't see any future sermons in heaven. But I see lots and lots of singing. Worship and singing about the character of God. Our songs, our worship, and you see these songs in the Bible, they are almost always directed to the character of God. They are singing of his love and his righteousness and his deliverance and and whatever. They're singing about the character of God. They're not singing about how I feel. They're not singing about, you know, I went to the garden alone. No, they're singing. Well, that's a song that when I went to the nursing homes, they always wanted to sing that song, and we sang it. But 
I always kind of didn't really like that song because it was just like, it was trite in my mind. It was, it's like, let's sing the songs that exalt the character of God and, and point to who he is objectively. Let's worship who he is theologically. And so here they are. They are worshiping God. Verse 4, who will not, who will not, who will not fear, O Lord, to, and glorify thy name? That's, see, that's the whole purpose. You are holy. You alone are holy. So they're worshiping God there on that scene. But we see a third scene here this morning. It's the scene of God's temple, verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8. It says there in verse 5, And after these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in, of the, of testimony in heaven was opened. What is this? Here's a dramatic new wrinkle. Something is about to draw John's attention away from the redeemed saints who are singing with their harps, praising God before the throne. Here is a new vision revealed to him of the bold judgments that are going to come in chapter 16. And John saw the angels who will carry out those judgments. As he watched, it says there, the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. So hence we see seven angels and coming forth from what I've called the temple of doom. That's not in the Bible, but they're carrying bowls of God's wrath. And the apostle has seen a similar sight. Uh, back in chapter 11, verse 19, it talks about the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. This is back in chapter 11, verse 19. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunders and an earthquake and great hailstorms. So John, what John saw back in chapter 11, verse 19, he sees again here in chapter 15, verse 5. And he sees these angels. God works through his angels. Um, and it speaks of these seven angels who have the seven plagues. And so here is God's final little ra- series of wrath judgments about to be implemented by seven angels. And it says that these seven angels were clothed in linen, clean and Bright, uh, the fabric, I believe, representing maybe their holiness and their purity. Uh, it says they were girded around their chests with golden sashes, perhaps running across from the torso uh, to the shoulder and to the waist, covering their upper bodies. And so there seems to be a sort of a solemn proceeding from the inner sanctuary of God's heavenly temple, there seems to be some kind of, uh, maybe a bit of what we would call pomp and circumstance here. And then you see the mentioning of the four living creatures. Now, what is that? Well, those are high-ranking angels, apparently, like a cherubim. You know that, the, that in the angelic world, there is structure, there is an order, a ranking. you got high-ranking ones and mid-ranking ones and lower-ranking ones. And so these four living creatures are an order of high-ranking angels, and these high-ranking angels are mentioned in a bunch of verses throughout the Old Testament. And it says that these four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The word bowl there speaks of a a shallow saucer-like thing, not like a, uh, I don't picture a deep salad bowl. I picture maybe a smaller bowl, uh, like a cereal bowl. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. uh, but the Greek word there is uh, philos, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, which I'm probably not. And so the imagery is not that of a stream being poured out gradually out of a pitcher, but, uh, but the whole contents of a shallow saucer being hurled down 
in instant judgment. Um, bowls were part of the temple furnishings too. Um, as I go back and did some reading on that, I saw that there are places that the bowl, the temple furnishings included bowls. And so, um, and so here are these seven angels with these seven bowls. And um, it says there uh, in verse 7, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Because God lives forever and ever, he has the power to put to an end all sin so that sin will never exist anymore. Once God is finished with this, sin will never exist anymore. All of it will be atoned for. All of it will be cared for. After a certain point, after sin is all judged, there will be no more sin. And ultimately, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And it says that one of the uh, out of the heavenly tabernacle, not only came these angels, but there was also, in verse 8, it speaks of smoke. And it says there in verse 8, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Smoke, if you go back to Exodus 19, verses 16 through 18, smoke seems to be an emblem or a picture of God's majesty. It symbolized his glorious presence here in this heavenly temple. And you see it in other places in the Old Testament, in the days of Moses, where smoke was in the earthly tabernacle or the, the earthly temple. And some have also said, well, the smoke also symbolizes God's wrath. It, it, it symbolizes his glory or his holiness, but it also symbolizes his wrath. Because it says there in verse 8, smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one was able to enter the tabernacle until the seven plagues, that would be his poured out wrath, of the seven angels were finished. So the glory cloud will remain. This smoke that's pictured here in heaven, in this tabernacle, in this temple rather, will remain in the heavenly temple until the earth is completely purged. Until the finishing of the bold judgments. That the, the smoke of God's holiness and his and his glory, and if, it, if they're symbolizing, if the smoke symbolizes his, his wrath as well, it's going to remain there until the bold judgments of chapter 16 are finished. So I say all that, it's like, wow, I'm kind of overwhelmed. As, as I've been going through this, it's like, there's just no break in Revelation, chapter after chapter after chapter. Wrath, wrath, judgment, wrath, man's sin. They refuse to repent over and over and over again. And so that's the scene we get from chapter 6 of Revelation, and it's going to go all the way through chapter 18. And so how do you conclude something like this? Well, I ask the question, if this is all true, and it is, then the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest message ever. If this is true, and it is, then the gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest message ever, and people need to hear it and to believe it. So I think about that. That's how it's affected me, personally. I think about, okay, I have within my understanding and grasp, figuratively speaking, I have an understanding of the gospel, what G, who I am and what Jesus did for me. And this is the, it's like if you had the, the cure for cancer, it would be a great thing for the world. I don't know if the AMA would allow you to propagate it because that would kill off a lot of their drug business. But that's another thing. But if you have a cure for cancer, and you could cure all cancer, it would be the greatest message the world would say. They would applaud it. Wouldn't they? But more than that, but more than that, if we have the cure for sin, and the cure to 
allow people the, 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 the message, to give them the message how they can be right with God, then that is the greatest message there is. So, again, as in the book of Hebrews, as the writer to the Hebrews writes to a bunch of recalcitrant Jews who were stubborn and who were hanging on to their old ways, the writer to the Hebrews says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then if you're a believer, know that as a follower of Christ, you are invincible. That the worst that the world can dish out on you or me will not thwart what God has planned for you and me. Again, go back to Romans chapter 8 in that glorious path. You are secure. The true believer has a security that can never be taken away. I'm not talking about the false professors of Christianity. I'm talking about the true possessors of Christianity. The true possessors have a security in Christ that cannot be taken away. So, having heard this, and as you know, that next week we'll be looking at chapter 16, where we look at these individual bulge. I'll take the whole chapter next week. I'm not going to, I'm getting tired of taking things in parts. I'm going to take bigger chunks here. I want to get through it. <laughs> I want to get through it. Because it's getting hard for me to take, to look at this and to see what awaits those who are outside of Christ. May we take the gospel to those people today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and how you allowed us to hear the gospel and you opened up our hearts even as you did with Lydia in Acts 16. It says that you opened up her heart so that she might receive the things spoken by the apostles. How you open up hearts to receive truth. Because we're so depraved and so sinful, Lord, in our natural state, we reject it. We hate it. But you have to cause us to see our need for you and to open up our hearts to receive Christ. And for those of us here who know you, and I think that's probably everybody in this room, I trust, I hope, I pray, that we have a standing with you that is invincible, that is indestructible. We have an inheritance that can never be taken away. Thank you, Lord, for doing for us what we can never do for ourselves. Dismiss us now with your blessing, with our understanding of these truths, Lord, we are surely blessed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.